better get on with a program of how you are wired, what you do well, what you really feel passionate about. You better be on that. So the gift is what is it you can do well? And the calling is what is that thing in your heart? This is where I'm going to apply it. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. On today's episode, Dr. John Morgan gives us a glimpse into what it's like to found and run a global nonprofit. This discussion reminded me of the anecdote, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. John tells the inspiring story of a leader in Kenya who, after attending one of Dr. Morgan's training courses, transformed his life and started multiple successful businesses. Dr. Morgan emphasizes the importance of property ownership, creating value, and buying into one's calling as keys to success. We also discuss similarities between running a nonprofit and running a for-profit business, highlighting the need for competent and passionate individuals on one's team. Welcome back to In the Thick of It. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Great to have a tour of your place. This is a cool joint. Well, thank you very much. Well, let's just start off with some basics. Tell people, where do you live? What do you do? And how'd you get into it? Yeah, I live here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I'm up just north of Flower Mound in the Argyle area. And I've uh, been living here almost two years. I'm an old dog. So many years ago, when I was a young buck, I went to seminary here in the Dallas area. So I was used to kind of the Dallas life a little bit. Then went out west where I really am from. I worked in pastoral ministry for 30 years. I was a lead pastor for most of that time. And in the course of that process, I had the privilege of doing a lot of mission work around the world. And the same theme, the same problem kept popping up over and over in every context where I would go. And that problem was the problem of poverty. And every time I would come away from one of those environments, whether it was in Asia or Africa or Latin America or Haiti, just really bothering me that particularly there weren't Christian models that was actually solving the problem. Lots of charity going on. And there are appropriate times and places for charity, but charity does not solve poverty. In fact, where charity gets overused as an attempt to solve poverty, it actually makes it worse because it creates a whole culture of dependence. So all my life, I've been a student of not only Christian theology, but also economics and organizational leadership. And I just, man, this thing was just bugging me because I knew there was a deeper methodology to actually solve the poverty because poverty has been solved millions of times in individual cases over history. In fact, most people, if you knew your family history, you could trace generations back far enough, you would find a generation that lived in poverty. It only takes my family about three generations back to find it. And there was a process at one generation in which they, they said, we got to get out of poverty. We got to work this thing out. And they did. So the essential process is the same. It has always been the same. And the aha moment for me was when it dawned on me that the core principles for solving poverty and creating prosperity, and I came to them mostly through economic research, are actually in the Bible. So for me to get that integration in my life, I realized, okay, I'm committed to the idea of sound economics that's inspiring to me, 
But to know that that's rooted in the Bible too, which I believe God's given us principles there, and it's all integrated truth, that was like, whoa, you know, the big moment for me. So I knew that God was calling me into a broader field and world of work beyond just one local church to really serving the church in the world. So about six years ago, I founded this organization that I now lead called People Prosper International, started a succession process for the leadership in my church that took a couple of years and uh, completed that and then went into this full time. So now we're working at multiple places around the world and we teach what we call biblical economic empowerment and leadership. And it's been pretty phenomenal to see how people take to it and what they do with it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, so thanks for that intro. What you described to me kind of sounds like the mantra of give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man a fish, he'll he'll teach for a lifetime. Is that kind of a, a good corollary to what y'all do? Absolutely. That's absolutely what we do. And then a number of times when we do what we do around the world, the people will actually come up to us and they know that saying. And they'll say, thank you for teaching me how to fish. That's awesome. Now, when we met online via Zoom a couple of weeks ago, just getting to know one another, you told me a story about one person in particular who I think his words to you were something like, why has nobody ever told us this before? Yeah. That story was just incredibly powerful. And would you maybe share a little bit more about that man and, and what's happened as a result of what you guys have helped him? Well, one of the places where we have one of the biggest footprints is in Kenya. So we've been working there and I've been teaching these training courses since 2010. And so we have a number of people in that part of Africa now that are doing some great stuff, man. It's inspiring. But what kind of my main contact guy there, he's a guy named Shim Okello and a part of a great family. In fact, a lot of people in our family have just been totally transformed by this training. So Shim was the the secretary general for the Southern Baptist in Kenya, and they have 4,000 churches. So Shem's a high-level leader. Shem is very literate in Bible. He's very literate, literate in theology. He's literate in Christian leadership. Really good guy, smart guy. And after the first day of him sitting in our training, yeah, at the end of it, and I felt like I could tell he was mad because, you know, that's what he said. How come nobody's ever told us this? Because... I began that day, it was, a, it was a room full of some pretty high-level leaders that he had gathered. I told them, I said, I'm going to tell you the secret of why there are funds that I can use to come over here and train you, but there's not funds behind you to come over and train me. So I'm going to teach you the secret of that. And I said, and I'm going to give you something more powerful than money. I'm going to teach you the secret of how to create your own money. And I don't mean you print funny money. <laughs> I mean, how you make money. And so I had him at that point. And then by the end of the day, that was one of his responses. One of the principles that we talk about is that it is absolutely critical that you buy and own property legally. Because if you don't, the poor around the world, they live on property, they use property, and almost all poor work. So they have some kind of an income stream. Usually it's not enough, but still they have some kind of income coming in. But they never own property legally. And what that means is they do not have a place where money can go and it gets stored and that value is retained and can grow. So people in the West, we just take it for granted. That's just normal life. That's second nature to us. But that's one of the commonalities about the poor around the world. It's been researched thoroughly and it's a huge, huge deal helping people get into property ownership. 
And so the second thing he, had, he you know he said to me was he said I never knew that you should own your property because I I've been renting my house for forever. You know, he's in his upper 40s and he's like forever I've rented my house. And before that year was out, I got an email from him that he had bought a piece of property, he'd hired a contractor to build a house for him and he told me I'm going to have my house paid off in 5 years. And I said, "5 years? My house will not be paid off in 5 <laughs> years." So that was his initial reaction. You want me to tell you a little bit about some of the things that he's put together since that? Yeah, that'd be great. And one thing I think that's important to note, our audience is pretty broad and diverse, and, and there are some that have certainly had exposure to the church and, and to the Bible, and there are others that are that have not. And I think something that's worth noting for those listeners who you know are a part of the church, I don't think you're preaching a, a health and wealth gospel at all. You are genuinely trying to teach people how to yeah. pull themselves out of poverty. Yeah, and my personal opinion is that I don't I don't believe in and I don't support the prosperity gospel. I believe that that is an idea that we are entitled to wealth because we are children of God. So somehow we're entitled and we kind of hope it in, we kind of wish it in, we kind of pray it in, and then it just shows up. I've never known anybody who built prosperity that way, although it seems to be pretty popular in the world. But we do believe in the principles of prosperity, that there are the right actions that you can do to solve poverty and to create more income and to grow prosperity. So, yeah, that's a good clarification. Thanks for making that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, back to uh, my story with Shem. So, I mean, he he got to work pretty quick, starting to apply what we talk about. And we talk about first principles, you have to create the best value that you can. You know, I look at a guy like you who's an entrepreneur you live and you thrive in the tech world. There was a particular part of that tech world that you realize I've mastered this. I know what I'm doing. I know how to bring value to the market. And then at one point you said to yourself, I can create higher value if I'm running an organization. Because if I do it just on my own, I can make a wage and I can make a good living. But building an organization is probably going to be my best way to create my best value. And it has. It's been a jump. It's been a jump for you over what you did previously. But so people who think in these principles, it's kind of normal. We just and even now, when I talk to you about current state of your organization, I can tell that that's like a daily thought process. Am I using my capacities? Am I maximizing that to create the best value that I can? So the poor around the world don't think that way. They don't. It's one of the big mistakes when Westerners go around the world. They give charity. They think, well, if I give them enough, they just take it and run. They'll be great. No, they don't. Because they, by and large, there's a victimized mentality. There's a mentality of passivity. In fact, kind of a funny thing, and I, I say this in almost every training I do around the world, and I've never seen a crowd not laugh and agree with it, and that is, if the poor get a windfall of money, what do they do with it? Well, kind of universally, they throw a party. <laughs> because there's not really a thought of, how would I hold on to this and grow it into more and leverage up? That's not the thought. The thought is, I'm never going to get out of poverty. We might as well enjoy this week or this event, what's going to go on now. So there is a mindset that is totally different that we challenge. We challenge them at the spirit level. We challenge them at the, at the mental level. So we challenge them to create the best value that they can, to own the best property they can, and then those that can do it to grow the best business that they can. Those three things create a virtuous cycle of prosperity. So Shem, he just, man, he just kind of got to it. And he just started thinking about, okay, where can I create value here? Where can I create it there? 
the first thing that he did is he, the Southern Baptists, at, right at that time when I was showing up, the Southern Baptists were officially leaving. The American Southern Baptists were officially leaving Kenya. They were declaring this is a reached nation for Christianity. Let's pour our resources into other countries around the world that are not, quote, reached yet by their standards. So the Kenyans were kind of in a panic. The Kenya Christians that were Southern Baptists, they, they were in a bit of a panic. Oh, no, because they relied a lot on their help and their leadership and their money. So they're all pulling out. And Shem went to the uh, convention and said, look, you've got a great van here that is being used. Would you donate that to us and let me use it? I would like to use it to start a transportation business. So that's the first thing he did, start a transportation business. They would transport mostly tourists around Kenya, take them on safaris, take them on, on missions trips. He started adding that to that where they would make money on that. They would buy other vans. He took the best of his van to the bank and he got a loan against that van and he built a four-story, three-across apartment building. So that's 12 units. And so now he's got a rental property. I mean, in America, it would be really hard to take a van. And turn that into a multi-unit apartment complex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in that market where you can build cheap, cheap labor, cheap materials, it's a block building. So it's very solid building, not fancy at all, but it's functional. There's a lot of people in the market that that's a great fit for them. So now he's got that going on. He developed some agricultural businesses. He went, started working up other rental property businesses. Then he started a business as a medical clinic. There was a neighborhood close to his his neighborhood, needed a medical clinic. He opened up a medical clinic. He now has three doctors who work for him. He's got three block apartments behind the clinic. He rents those out to the doctors. His 15-year-old daughter cuts the checks for all his payroll every week. His daughter is writing checks to pay doctors. When Shim was, was young, he aspired to be a doctor, but he could not pass the tests to be approved on the educational track in Canada to become a doctor. He's now writes the paychecks for doctors. In Kenya, the women who are pretty stylish about their hair, what they get is this very elaborate braided hairdo. They're beautiful, but it takes a ton of work and they're expensive to get. So that's the kind his wife wants. That's the kind, he's got a housekeeper that, that lives with them. She wants that kind of a hairdo. He's got daughters growing up. They want that kind of a hairdo, you know? So he's like, you guys are killing me on hairdos here. I'm just going to take a guess that uh, as entrepreneurial as he is, he saw a market opportunity and he started a salon. Yeah. And here's a dude that doesn't know anything about salons. <laughs> and he goes and opens up the salon and, and the main gal there, she's not only a hairstylist, but she's also a teacher. So he's got a hair salon slash school. <laughs> Beauty school. The one and only. Yeah. I've got a picture of he and I in with uh, some of the hairstylists. Then out front, there's over the front, it says Blessed Salon. <laughs> I think it's, it's kind of cute the way they, they name their businesses in some of those places. But yeah, Blessed Salon indeed. It was, it was a great thing. He's making money off it. Then he takes me to another place around the corner where he's opened up a butchery. And they call it a butchery. It's a, it's a meat market. It's basically where you buy beef. So they rent out a little storefront about the size of this room that we're recording in. And on one, the wall. It's not a big room for reference. Yeah, no, it's not big. And there's a glass a plate window between them and the street. And there's a big hook from the ceiling. And there's whatever size beef, either half a beef or a quarter of beef. So they would usually buy a quarter beef. And that's what they can sell with the, the amount of time that the temperature of that room, it's, it's good. Okay. So he just keeps seeing these opportunities and building these things out. He's now 
gotten pretty sophisticated with his rental properties. And when I was with him two months ago in May, they have just opened the, the door on a hospital. He has gone into business with a doctor and several other people that are there, like their board and their directors. They've all put their life savings into it. And their business model is so attractive that they've got some Western money coming in as venture capital behind them. And they've launched this hospital. And again, you know, when Shim tells a story, he's like, when I was a kid, my dad was so disappointed that I couldn't get the grades to go into medical school. Now he's an owner in a hospital. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. So, and he's still a leader of a lot of ministries, but now he's at a point where back in 2010, I said, you know what? Here's, Here's my vision that within one generation, your children would never even think that they need to go raise money from the West because they know how to create everything that they need here in Kenya. That's coming true in his life. That's amazing. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me is, as you tell the story is you're not just pulling him out of poverty. And I think it would have been a win. I think it would have been a success had he bought his home. And even if that was the end of the story, I think that would be a huge, huge success. But not only has he done that and created prosperity for himself, it sounds as if he's almost created his own economy and he's got people that he employs and the businesses that he has started up need things from other businesses. And so he's created this just flywheel of commerce between him and other organizations. And that's just, that seems so critical to making this all work. There's this whole ecosystem around him because he's so well known because of all of his ministry and leadership of a variety of things. He has a brother named Jared who became a member of parliament during the same stretch of time. So in the same stretch of time, his brother Jared was asking the same question, how do I create the best value I can with my life? And I counseled with him early on because he was really wrestling with the idea of, could God call a Christian into public service? And I'm like, he better, he better, or we're going to lose these countries, including our own. And so I said, if you feel that calling, I'd strongly urge you to. So now he's right in the middle of the inner circle of the prime minister now in Kenya. But because of that, they are just so well known around the country and everybody's clamoring for Shim to come teach them. He's gone over to Uganda, a neighboring country, and they went nuts over it. I was with him across the border in Tanzania, just south of Kenya. And when I do trainings now, I I have sessions where I have, I do some of it, but I have him do some of it. So he gets up and he's speaking in Swahili. And then there's a Tanzanian man speaking their local tribal dialect. And I've already trained some, and both these guys know what we're talking about. And I'm sitting over behind them, and I'm watching these two guys. And these guys are like a comedy show. I'm like, these guys got to hit the road. They've got the crowd rolling. It's in a little mud hut village church, and they're just rolling, screaming with laughter, all the stories that they're telling. But I'm like, these guys ought to hit the road, man. This stuff is money, <laughs> what, nice. these, what these guys are doing. But they believe it. They live it. They're totally excited about this idea. And I love the word empowerment because it's what happens. The power of the real truth, when it gets inside somebody, you're never the same. I'm going to paraphrase, but you you kind of put out the question, where can I create the highest value? And I think it's really cool to see you saw an opportunity for you to create your highest value by setting up this organization. And now, not only have you helped Shem create this prosperity for himself and his family and for all these others, 
But now he's actually multiplying that and creating the most value by not just running these organizations, but by taking that out to others. And I just think that's so cool to see people paying that forward and living that out. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, I know that kind of the target of your podcast, business owners, leaders, people that have a vision of what they're wanting to do with their life. And I'm just, I'm such a believer that everybody has a purpose in life, that everybody's got a design that's been given to them by the creator, that you are what you are for a reason. Like I spent a lot of my life, I spent a lot of my life ashamed of what I am. I'm weird, man. I'm a very high visionary. I'm a very high introvert. I'm very high into thought leadership. And this thing of economics, I mean, it's like, I'm always reading a text in economics and people are like, are you, you're out of your gourd, man. (laughs) But I always live with this sense of what's wrong with me. And the answer is there's really nothing wrong with you. You just got to keep asking that question. How do I create the best value I can with the way God has designed me? And the season of pastoring for me was good in a lot of ways. And God let us lead for some good results in some people's lives. But by far, this is the, if you think of your perfect fit is, is like on a bullseye of a target, this is much more closer to the sweet spot on that target for me. And I think you can pick that up by how, how motivated I am for it. Let's maybe talk about that for a minute. I know me and kind of the entrepreneurial journey that I've been on, I couldn't have just jumped right into doing this when I was 22 and graduated college. I always felt this kind of pull to start something, but I needed to get experience in order to be able to do this and and to do it well. At least I hope I'm doing it well. But could you maybe talk about like when you look back, yes, you're in the sweet spot now, you're you're in that bullseye. But what were some of the the things that led up to you being at a point where you could go do this and live in your sweet spot? Yeah, gosh. Some of it was formal education. I did have to have the theology formally so I knew what I was talking about. I did a PhD in organizational leadership, and what I researched in that process really has been important to me to get my thinking right. My father was a pastor, and from early on when I was a kid, he would be taking me traipsing around the world with him and some of these missions environments. So even as a kid, being in the poverty situations would mess me up for quite a while. I can just remember thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. So it's an accumulation of a lot of this stuff. And then going into these mission settings, I slowly started getting the opportunity to start training some of this. At first I would go and they would want me to train on something else, leadership or Bible or whatever. But I'd say, hey, how about this? You think you'd be interested in this? And so slowly I started getting a little bit of an audience and I just kept seeing a bigger response, bigger response, bigger response. So I definitely had to grow into it. Some of them formal experiences, some of them just informal experiences. This is not going to sound real great, but as great as pastoring was, I got to the point where I was sick of it. <laughs> That's a very unholy thing to say. I just said it. That's We're all about honesty here. We get to work with a lot of ministries, and I have got to kind of peek behind the curtain, and I would imagine that it's probably exhausting a lot of the time, and well, for particularly for my temperament, I don't really have a great temperament for it. So I heard a uh, quote one time from Napoleon. I, I'm probably going to get this story wrong, but Napoleon was captured by the French and they had him in a prison on an island somewhere. 
I proposed to my wife on that island. So you kind of know the story. So he escaped when he was asked, why would you risk death? He said, I was so miserable. The worst thing that could happen is I would die. (laughs) Meaning I'd rather die than stay in this misery. And, you know, when I took the entrepreneurial risk of starting a nonprofit organization, the thought that just kept plaguing my mind was, I'm taking my wife and I financially off a cliff and we're going to go into poverty trying to help other people get out of poverty. That's all I could think about night after night. And I had to keep bringing myself back to, no, you got a plan. But honestly, I got to the point, I was so miserable that almost any alternative would be better, but I knew the alternative I really wanted. And so I guess I'm a slow learner (laughs) because the worst that could happen is I was going to die or go into poverty myself. And I was willing to take that chance. So it was obviously a a very planned and I trust well executed transition out of your, your pastoral ministry into doing this. But I got to believe that there was a spark. There was a moment where it was just crystal clear to you what it was that you needed to do. Does that resonate at all? And if so, can you kind of talk to us about what that aha moment was? Yeah, I would say there were two of them. One of them, when I was wrestling with the ideas and I came to it economically, that these are the three principles that I believed they are the bedrock. There's a lot of other things. There's a lot of practices, but these were the bedrock principles. You get those and you do those halfway decent. It's almost impossible to not solve poverty. Then when I was going back through biblical studies and really looking at the Bible economically, the first principle pops up in the first chapter of the Bible. The second and the third principles pop up in the first book of the Bible in very big ways. So I was like, you know, I'm on to something here. And then the second one was that training that I did in 2010 in Kenya that Shem and a group of leaders were in it. So, so that that actually took place long before you were doing this full time. Oh, yeah. I was already tasting and seeing, and I, I, I had to get some of it out. That training, there were a number of guys from my church. They were businessmen, and they were with me. And we were in a room that was hot and muggy and training eight hours that day, and I was out of my mind, just with mental clarity, with motivation, sweating like a dog and loving every second of it. I remember walking out of there and those guys from my church looking at me like, who are you? The switch got flipped. Who are you? Can I give another historical? uh, It's not about me. So in my doctoral research, I was researching a number of transformational leaders. So one of them was... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He's pastoring in an Alabama town and there are racial issues that are going on. So they've all got to go meet one night at one of the local African-American churches that they want everybody to come and rally. It may have been over the Rosa Parks incident. But anyway, the community knew we have got to have some kind of official response from the African-American community. And the church was the rally point for all that. So they meet at this one big church and they tell Dr. King that he's going to go on stage and he's only got a brief time to get his thoughts together. And he gets up at that event that is packed with people from all these churches and most of his church was there. And he is out of his mind with clarity. He's out of his mind with passion. He's out of his mind framing up what this is and what we've got to do. 
And they said that his people from his church were saying, who is this guy? And I guess the point being, when you're living in your true calling or your truest calling, it's undeniable. So to the listeners that are thinking about, hey, I'm thinking about making a move in career, or maybe I'm thinking about taking the, the entrepreneurial jump or whatever, there's you, but then there is the you on fire. Yeah. I can think about when I think about the best days that I've I've had in my work life, it's the days that I felt like I was adding value by helping people understand and catch a vision for the things that I know and know well. Hearing somebody talk about a problem and being able to go, okay, here's how we can solve it. We do A, B, C, D, and they walk away going, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Let's do it. I can remember one meeting in particular, just walking on air as I walked out to the parking lot because I I knew I was in my sweet spot because I knew I'd hit a home run in helping that organization. So back to one of your earlier statements or questions, you were saying, yeah, what were those things that kind of prepared you to get where you were? And I, I see a similar theme between you and I. I think it would be similar. And there were clearly times in my life when I felt like I'm ignorant on this topic and I don't want to be ignorant on this topic. I want to know it well enough that I'm conversing it and I know how to function in this field of study or whatever. So there were times I just said, you know, I've got to get my theological education. There's other times I was like, no, now it's time for me to get education and leadership. And now it's time for me to get deeper in economics and really get my head around it because I just keep hitting this over and over as it's such a strong interest that I got to learn this stuff. So had you not formally become educated in technology, you know, you were not going to be able to be conversant and to be competent and doing the kind of things that you're doing now. And there was probably some, at some point you just were like, I, I need to learn this stuff. It's my stuff that I've got to, I got to get some expertise in this stuff. Unless you are fortunate to have very deep pockets and you can be an investor as opposed to an operator, you've really got to know it. Yeah. But even then as an investor, you've got, you better become conversant in strategy and, and finance. And cause I mean, you know how it is. You can put your money in one thing or you put your money in another thing. You've got to make those discretionary decisions. It takes some background. It takes a field of knowledge to be able to do that well, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You're the first person from a nonprofit that we've had as a guest. Okay. I noticed you guys serve quite a few nonprofits on your wall in there. Yeah, we do. Our customer base is very broad, but years ago, nonprofit was 60 to 65% of our, our total business. And over the years, just because of some offerings we've, we've come out with, it's shifted a little bit more, but nonprofit is regularly 35 to 45% of our, our business over the last two, three years. So lots of work in that space. From your view I'm sure that there's a lot of things that are similar in starting a nonprofit and starting a for-profit. You need systems, you need to know who your target market is and things like that. What are the things you think are different in starting a nonprofit versus starting a for-profit? Nothing. I mean, I didn't think there was any difference between business and, and running a church. You know, when I was leading a church, I felt like I do everything that my friends in business do. Everything. We market. We position ourselves in the market. We have HR issues. We have accounting issues. We have products that we put out. We have services that we put out. We hire. We fire. We have lawsuits that we deal with. <laughs> we buy property. We invest. Well, there was not one thing that my business friends did who were successful that we did not have to do. All The only difference is we also had to preach a good sermon on Sunday. <laughs> 
and they get to sit back and enjoy. Yeah, and had to have spiritual integrity and uh, genuineness. So honestly, my answer is it's the same thing. If you're going to run an organization that is dependent on financial success, and every nonprofit is, I mean, every nonprofit has to have money because we pay for the same things that every business does. We pay for personnel, we pay for facilities, we pay for travel. We have to pay for everything that are part of our cost structure, right? And so maybe I'm just jaded. Maybe I don't get it, but I don't see any difference. That's a great perspective. I mean, we know the tactical distances. There's no owners. There's no equity in a nonprofit. We're not building up equity that anybody personally owns. That's the difference. So we don't have a profit and loss statement at the end of the year. We have a statement of financial activity. And we hope we have a little bit left over at the end of the year. And, and we do try to build up some savings. And in our organization, we're trying to move into where we have an endowment and we eventually would have some money in some investment. But yeah, I don't really see any difference. What were the first few things that you did as you were getting your business off the ground that you would attribute early success to? We knew what we were talking about. It was transformational for the end user. Just think of our nonprofit in terms of a business model. We have a, a string of customers. The front end of the string is our donors. And then there's several other along the way, but then there's the final learner and how it's transformational for them. But we can't do any of it if we don't have the first customer, which is a donor. Every donor wants to make a difference with their gift. They want to change people's lives. They want to feel some excitement about, look, everybody wants to do something cool with their life. And this is one method you can do something cool with your life. So I think early on, it was making the case with our potential donors, just imagine how powerful this can be. And then trying to share the stories and the pictures and just tell about it and bring them into that with us so that we had some running funds to make it happen. I think it was that one. I think getting to a business model pretty quickly, we kept asking the question, where's the bottleneck? in terms of delivering, where's the bottleneck? And the bottleneck is me or somebody else on our staff feeling like we're gonna run around the world and personally do all the training. That ain't gonna work. Because we have a vision to train a million people or, or to empower a million people by 2030. So- How are you tracking against that? We count, we count the number of people that have been in our training and we have people that do training for us to give us their counts. So we, we tally that. So we realized we have to become the trainers of trainers and we have to move towards training national people. Like we have trained Kenyans, we have trained Tanzanians. So today I got a report from some Tanzanians that I trained in May and they got so fired up. They started a new organization called People Prosper Tanzania and they've got a whole strategy of how they're trying to train a thousand by the end of this year and then to move out much broader as the years go by in Tanzania, but trying to find that bottleneck and saying, you got to make this thing explode beyond you. So it's kind of like the Christian evangelism explosion model, the discipleship model. You, you train trainers, you train trainers, and you get into the multiplication business. So, and then when we do hire or add somebody to our team, trying to pick the most capable people, high character and high capability, just to me, that's huge. And as you're adding people to your team, are you looking for people that are in a particular geography or are you looking at people anywhere and everywhere now that we're in kind of this Zoom virtual world? We're pretty virtual. If the person is the right kind of person for us, right now, what I'm trying to add are major department heads 
and they're the kind of people that don't need a lot of direction. They just need an outcome. So in my PhD research, my topic of research was human capability because I went into it with the question that I went into my doctoral program was, why can some people lead at this level and others can lead at this level? Others can lead at this level and others can lead at this level. What's the difference? I think I found the answer and it's virtually not what anybody is saying. It's not more training. It's not just somebody just born and they automatically do it. Although there is a lot of inborn part of it, but different people have different levels of mental capability to do leadership work and it is measurable. So the level of capability that I need somebody to have for the kind of jobs I'm trying to fill now If they're at that level, they could live virtually anywhere in the world and do their job and we can stay in communication with them. So the answer is, it'd be nice to have them around here, some, but honestly, I found advantages by having them in other cities because they can help work that market and build other networks for what we're doing. So if I understood you correctly, you said you can quantify a person's leadership capabilities. Mm -hmm. It can be quantified. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that? We can quantify what's called their complexity of information processing. It's a mental process. It's not intelligence. It's not IQ. It's the ability to solve problems at a higher level. And is there like a test you put somebody through for this or is it a conversational assessment? Yes, it's both of those. There's several firms. They do it. I could do it with more practice. I know how it's done to really be good at it. You need to have about 100 to 300 of them under your belt. I'm not going to invest the time to do that. So I hire a Because that's not your highest uh, return on, that's not where you're going to create the most value. Right, right. So I use a firm out of uh, North Carolina called PeopleFit. They've been doing it for years. This model of leadership and management is used broadly in Europe. Uh, There's quite a few firms in uh, Canada that use it. It's not very well known in the U.S. It was brought into the administrative and leadership side of the U.S. Army about 30 years ago. Totally transformed. After Vietnam, the U.S. Army was totally debilitated in bad morale. Guys are doing drugs. They're insubordinate to officers. U.S. Army was a mess after Vietnam. This was one of the groups that came in and they began working with the Pentagon and they totally reworked their systems of how they recruited and promoted up the chain. And they had a very clear picture for a four-star general, what kind of a mental capability they have to have and how do you measure that and at each of the ranks going down. So what I'm saying is that there's a number of firms that they do this. I use that firm. So if I'm evaluating a candidate, they'll test them and tell me where they are. I know where I generally need them to be able to function. Very interesting. Are there other organizations out there that do what you do? There are other organizations that do different kinds of empowerment. Probably the most typical, and they would call it empowerment and sustainability, is they go in and they teach to a particular kind of small business. So they might teach them how you run a chicken business or how you run a motorcycle transportation business or how you run a fish farm or how you run a sewing business. And they train them particular to that business. And there's benefit in that. There's value in that. But what they don't do, they don't go to the root. They don't go to the root spirit and the core thinking that has to be changed. What we have found is our specialty is that root. If you do that root, then if one of those people come out of it thinking, hey, 
I think I want to do the chicken business. Then if they can hook up with one of those people that teach them chicken business and maybe even help them get their, their seed stock to make that happen, that's a great combo. But what we have found is a lot of people, once they get through that, they don't need somebody coming in and giving them a micro loan or giving them a starter business and coaching them how to do that starter business. They have enough of a new spirit and they have enough of a new picture that they start getting the sense that you and I have had at times in our life where we said, I'm ignorant in this topic and that does not feel good. I want to become conversant or a good or expert in this topic because that's the kind of value I'm going to want to create. So it may not be sophisticated. It may be somebody thinking, I want to learn how to weld. You know what? In a lot of places around the world, if you're a pretty good welder, you can make a pretty decent living. And so a lot of times it's not real sophisticated, but it's just a clear path on how do I go create it and elevate my life. It's very interesting. Going back to kind of the multiplication of training the trainers who are going to train the trainers. When you're in country in these impoverished nations, does the audience resonate more with their own people teaching them than they do the Westerner coming in from overseas? They are attracted first more to the Westerner because it's we're kind of seen as experts and celebrities. And it's a little bit of a badge of honor, but they're the attraction. But when it comes to telling stories of how it's really worked in somebody's lives, they would much rather hear that from their fellow Kenyan or Ugandan or whatever, telling the story of how they went through it. And the thing I love about Shim, he's a comedian, man. And he, he'll he have them rolling in the aisles talking about, you know, how this came about. And he tells one story about he got this idea close to a university that there was a piece of property that was very cheap. And he could build in Eastern Africa, there's a mud hut that's very common. And it's usually round. And you put like a thatch roof on it. And a lot of people live in it. So... He can build them for about 400 bucks. So he bought this little piece of land that he knew he could put up four or five of these mud huts close to a university. And then he's going to put a rent sign out and he's planning to rent it to university students. And he's thinking, I'm thinking I could rent them for eight, 800 Kenya shillings a month, which is not very much, but he thought, ah, that's what I can get. And that'll, that'll fit my model here. So he puts it out for rent. He's out there on a, on a weekend. He has a group of students come to him. They look at it and they're wanting to, rent. They ask him, how much is rent? And he goes, uh, well, how much do you think would be fair? So they all said, well, give us a minute. So they all gather together and they go under a shade tree and they all talk with each other. And then they all come back and they said, we think 1,500 Kenyans a month would be fair. And he goes, <laughs> he let them set the price he and sti- that worked he, out well. He sticks his hand out, you know, well, the audience is hearing him tell and they just scream. They think it's the funniest thing. So yeah, they to hear one of their people describe the process and what they went through and what they're doing now. They love that. So it's a combo. They're like hearing a certain part of it from me, from me or one of our other team. And, but we have a lot of places that they're only hearing it from their people. So yeah, it's both. That's great. So you're a few years into this. Is there anything you would go back and do different if you were starting it over again? Yeah, but we learned it by doing it, right? So it's not like I could have known, but I realized that, man, there's limitations to my time and my energy and my mental focus. So I cannot be traveling nonstop around the world teaching. I have to be strategic in my best use of time. So we are leveraging to train trainers. We're leveraging to create master classes online. We're doing more work on creating printed materials that go behind the trainers. 
So trying to be more of the puppet master than the puppet out there, you know, trying to make it happen. Delegation was something that I had to learn. Yes. And, and I have to be reminded of how important that is. I, I tend to want to take control and. Yep. Sounds like I'm not the only one. No, no. It's that control freak thing, man. It's hard to let it go, man. It is hard. But, you know, after you kill yourself, you realize I, this is not going to work. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to reach my goals doing it this way. That's for sure. What are the parts of your running this organization that you enjoy the most? And then maybe on the flip side, what are things you enjoy the least? I love the thought leadership. I love the directional leadership of the organization. I love the strategic thinking. You know, how do we, what strategy is going to work best? I love the mass communication stuff, whether it's online or speaking to a large audience or through writing. So love the visionary part of it, the communication part of it, the thought leadership part of it. That's what flows my boat. Okay. And what are those parts that you're like, man, I think I need to delegate this. Mm -hmm. Anything that's management or administration or maintenance of ongoing systems. What do you think has been, if you could point to two or three keys to your, your success, what would those things be? Yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, as a, as a man of faith, you, None of it would be possible. I wouldn't be who I was if it wasn't for the Lord and His grace and leading me in my life. So I believe that's definitely the first. In terms of any human action, I do think you have to be on your calling. You know, I've lived it where I wasn't 100% on it close, but it just wasn't the full fit. And I think you've got to be on your passion. You've got to be on your calling. You've got to be using your gifts. The Bible has a phrase that I really like. and It says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, meaning that God made you the way you are, and nobody's changing it. I often say that the great theologian B.B. King said it this way, <laughs> you is what you is. You ain't changing it. You are not changing it. So you better get on with the program of how you are wired, what you do well, what you really feel passionate about. You better be on that. So the gift is what is it you can do well? And the calling is what is that thing in your heart? This is where I'm going to apply it. I love business. I love business people. And I love the business arena. It's just not my calling. But for those that it is your calling, it is one of the most noble things you can do. I mean, it is such a blessing in so many ways, economically to our world and creating jobs and creating all these fantastic things that make our lives better. I mean, it's just such a, it's the engine of prosperity for a culture. So, you know, you find that area that you say, that's the area I'm passionate to take what I'm good at and go do it. So I, to me, that's number one. I value competence highly. So I think you have to know what you're talking about. So if you have to go learn something to be good at your field, I'm a strong believer in constant learning. So I always have a stack of books that I'm working through because I don't want to be ignorant of those things. I want to keep on that curve. The people that you choose to be on your team, just huge. I mean, it is huge. They have to be people of integrity. They have to be people of the competence level in the level that you put them. That's massive. So I would say, you know, whenever I can make a good move on those stuff, it just makes a big, big difference. You mentioned books. What's in your stack right now? What are you reading? I always have some kind of wonky economic book going on. There's one called Human Action. That's one of the classic economic books by a guy named Ludwig von Mises. And he's part of what's called the Austrian School of Economics. Part of it is so hard to read. It's like brain damage. But then when you get to the next page where he just hits it out of the park, man, I'm like, it was worth it. He said that so awesome. 
And he totally destroys the current economic thinking in our country, which is driving me nuts. But anyway, reading that one, great management book on systems called The Four Disciplines of Execution. Have you heard that? I have heard of it. Man, man. And I've read a lot of I've read a lot of management stuff. That one is good, man. It is really good. And then there's another one that I'm working with a guy here locally on. He's working me through some strategy on it called the Blue Ocean Strategy. Are you familiar with that? I'm familiar with that one. Yeah. So I'm I'm working through that one. I've got a strategy session with this guy who's kind of like a coach in that tomorrow. Man, that's giving me like a whole new world of clarity for where we need to go next. Are you the kind of person that can juggle multiple books at one time and stay with it? I'm a one-track person. I couldn't jump around. I got to start and finish before I pick something else up. If there are different categories, I can. So it's like I can have a business bit going and a, an economics one going and a ministry like one going. So I've got one of the ministry ones I've got going is called Poverty No More. And it's a nonprofit organization. Their leader wrote the book about their strategy of how they're solving poverty in villages. And I, they've got some great thinking in that book. I use a counselor. So my counselor recommended a book written by a guy named Van Vonderen, Van Vonderen. And it was about spiritual abuse in the church and just kind of talking through how shame is used as a form of spiritual abuse in the church. So my, my counselor recommended I, I get that. So I've been reading, reading through that one. Some really cool lights have been going on in my brain on that one. So, you know, I'm weird. I'm wonky. I'm just kind of reading across several things. Oh, good for you. Looking back over the last few years, is there something that has not worked out quite like you hoped? <laughs> ah, everything? <laughs> Nothing has worked out. Like my wife says, man, one of the curses of being a visionary the way you are is that everything is such a disappointment to you. <laughs> when you finally get to the big day or the big moment of whatever you're doing, which is, there's a lot of truth in that. Give me an example of that. Gosh, everything. I mean, I saw it in pastoral ministry all the time. Any event, any key initiative that we were trying to do, they just never lived up to my dreams and the expectations. Like you didn't get as many people there as you yeah, expected. Yeah. Oh, you man, didn't we, raise as yeah. much as you hoped. Yeah, yeah. This community that we lived in, we built this gorgeous new ministry campus in a community that just didn't have that kind of stuff in their churches. I thought, man, this is going to double the size of our church. And we got about a 15% jump. And I was like, after all that? But yeah, the same thing in this work. My vision always exceeds my realities. I just, my wife says, I feel sorry for you, man. You're just never quite happy. You know, and, I, and I'm like, you know, I don't feel like I'm an unhappy person, but I do feel like. Do you beat up on yourself? A little bit, a little bit, but I still am energized by chasing the vision. Well, most of us are our own worst critics. So yeah, I, right. you're, in, you're in good company. Yeah, yeah. How about you? I mean, do you struggle with that? Not as much as I used to. Okay. Um, little by little, I've I've learned to control what I can control, and I certainly still have disappointments and and frustrations, but I've learned to move on from them quicker than I used to. So, what what would you say is the best thing you've done here? Hire good people. Yeah, it's hard to get around that one, isn't it? There really is no substitute. There's only you said this earlier. There's only so much you can do on your own. You have to have good people. And one of my biggest fears when I made my first hire, the first fear was, okay, can I afford to pay them and feed my own family at the same time? Right. right. And once I got over that mental hurdle, the next one was, is this person going to care 
as much as I do right. about the success of right. the customer. Yeah. And we've been incredibly fortunate that we've we found like-minded people that truly care that pour themselves into our projects and and really are yeah, there to see our know, customers succeed. So it's like no matter what business you're in, you're in the people business. No doubt. You can't get away from it. No doubt. We can't get away from it. But one of my colleagues that works with us at our organization, he he worked for six months as like the corporate trainer and the executive trainer within a large auto dealership group. And within the period of time of this, just intentionally saying, let's develop our people better. They totally transformed their customer base and their per ticket item just by elevating their people. It's like before they thought, oh, we're in the car business. No, you're not in the car business. And before they were just rotating people through, with, but they got intentional about it. So what a true thing. And then, so what would be a mistake you made along the way? And here you're like, oh man, I wish I had that one back. I whiffed, I whiffed on that one. Thinking that you can take on more than you really can, and and not just in the sense of delegation, but as an organization, can we actually take on this additional initiative and be successful with it? And I think that even with good people, you have to be very sober-minded about how much you can be good at in a given amount of time. And there are things that I would either go back and not do, or I would have resource them differently to make them more successful. Because you overstretched? Lack of focus leads to okay. lack of results. Okay. And yeah. not so much from a yeah. from an overstretched, but just not having the capacity to do this thing well. That's the beauty of that four disciplines of execution. They've got a really cool process of making you laser in. And I've been plagued by that too, because Across my life, I've kind of been a jack of all trades and master of none. So I always kind of felt like, well, I can do everything, you know. Well, then you try to do everything. It does not work. It doesn't. Mm -mm. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of people, are there any people that you would like to thank for helping you get to this point? Yeah, I've got a great wife. I've got a great family. I was blessed with great parents. And then along the way, I've been blessed to be able to be in some good educational environments, so some good profs and and mentors along the way, several people that just kind of like in a, have taken me under their wings in terms of just mentorship, uh, several older men that just kind of like, um, I think men need men to teach them how to be men. And I, I think there's a women's corollary to that. I don't know because I'm not a woman, but I, but I feel that way as a guy. And so I've had the blessing of that in my life. And I think that gives me more courage and even a sense of, well, if I fail, I can, we'll pick ourselves back up and go again. It's not the end of the world. So yeah, I feel blessed by those kinds of people in my life. How about you? I echo my wife is absolutely incredible. My wife is very risk averse. And when I came home from a business trip one day and told her, that I wanted to start my own thing. She said, you want to do what? And it took a year of prayer and seeking wise counsel. And I'll never forget the night that uh, we got our kids to bed. And she said, hey, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. She said, I want you to do this. And she's just been incredibly supportive all the way through. My father sounds like your father was very influential in your life. And I'm very much in the same boat. My parents loved me well. They gave me every opportunity. They were examples of integrity. And 
I had the good fortune of getting to watch my dad run businesses. Oh, that's cool. And in fact, we're, we're in the same business. And so he's opened a lot of doors for me getting this thing off the ground and would not be here if it weren't for my dad. Like you, you talked about having other men and, and mentors in your life. I've had a, a number of mentors, both formal and informal. There's a man named Jim Woodward who works with an organization called Convene that does business coaching and, and runs peer groups for business leaders, business owners. Jim has been a huge force in our success. There are people in the industry, Marcus Wagner, Mike Yeager, Craig Decker, Brian Terrell, and the list just goes on and on of people that have just given me their time. I mean, that's just one of the things that I'm just so incredibly humbled by is that I've got to stay up till two o'clock in the morning talking to people about things that they've learned. And really, that's kind of the genesis for this podcast is wanting to pay forward and help other entrepreneurs learn from what other what I've learned and what people yeah. like you've learned. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, when you really start counting up all the influences, you realize I didn't get here by myself. You know, I mean, without a doubt, I had to work hard and I had to do certain things. But yeah, what a testimony to a lot of people investing in your life and in my life and it's the way it works. And that list goes on and on and on and on. And if we had more time, I could fill up hours of recording. So we'll leave that there. Well, if somebody came to you and said, hey, I'm thinking about starting an organization, I'm thinking about starting a nonprofit, what advice would you give them? Well, I think I would talk them through explaining to me what their model is and what is it you're trying to do? How are you going to go about trying to put your donor base together? How are you going to communicate to your donors? How are you going to deliver your program? Every nonprofit has two very big sides. You have your fundraising side and you have your program delivery side. So I try to talk them through both sides of that to be sure that it sounds like they have thought it out pretty well. And just to be sure there's nothing glaring that, look, you're going to have to pay attention to this and be sure you get this part of it right. And then if it felt like they had enough that just didn't look like any major holes, I probably would encourage them to pull the trigger. You're going to learn most of what you're going to need to know by doing it. Amen. You know, in the training we do around the world, we say that over and over, that what most people don't understand is the real education begins when you actually try to do something. And yeah, you may go back on some of the technical things you learn in school, but the reality is, I mean, I learned preaching by preaching. I learned leading by leading. I learned fundraising by fundraising and getting other people in my life that don't know how to do it too. But you get desperate and you start getting them into your life when you realize I'm not cutting it here. What what do I got to learn? So yeah, pull the trigger and man, just be a sponge, learn everything you can. I love the podcast format too, for the exact same reason you're using it, you know, to say, look, it gives me a great way to pick the best out of what other people are thinking and doing and share with each other. And Yeah. That was Dr. John Morgan, founder and president of People Prosper International. To learn more, visit peopleprosper.org. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us.